Awesome. Hey, everyone. Hey, well, I'm excited to be here with you guys. Um, and I really don't say that flippantly um, or just because it's my job, but I truly am excited um, to see you guys, excited for you guys to encounter um, Jesus tonight, excited for him to move um, and unlock your hearts. Um, if you guys don't know me, my name is Chris. Um, I'm one of the campus pastors here. Um, so I'm specifically over the GCU side of things. Um, and I get to do that alongside my amazing wife, um, Stosh. Um, so her name's Stosh. Yeah. She's incredible. Her name is actually short for Anastasia, which fun fact about that, but actually means um, resurrection life um, in the Greek. Um, and if you know her, if you've been around her, then you know um, that she truly lives up to that name. She is incredibly godly, incredibly compassionate, and kind, and intelligent, and the list goes on and on, but she truly does make your life 10 times better than before you met her. Um, so I'm super blessed and lucky to be married to her. She is definitely the love of my life, and I love her a ton. Um, and then on the other side of things, on the ASU um, side of things, and we have Dawson as our amazing ASU campus pastor. Um, yeah, he's awesome. He brought the word last week and did an incredible job preaching on the glory of God. Um, and he does that alongside his super awesome, talented, godly wife, um, Sada, as well. Um, and we're actually not just two um, campus ministries or separate campus ministries, but we're one college ministry. And um, we're one college ministry that's under one um, umbrella um, where we get to be under our fearless leader, um, Malia Williamson. So she is awesome. She's been pouring out her lives for college students um, ever since she was a freshman in college, so for like seven or eight years now. Um, so she's incredible. Um, she's our college director. She's the authority that we submit to, and rightfully so. She's a powerhouse um, in the kingdom of God. So if you don't know her, I encourage you to get to know her. Um, so that's who we are. Um, and Dawson explained a little bit last week about the vision of who we are, but I wanted to um, bring a little refresher and remind you guys, or if you're new here, I wanted to fill you guys in. Um, so we're a part of a network of churches, and the tagline for that network of churches um, is that we have a passion for Jesus and his purposes in the earth. Um, and the way that we see that passion play out and those purposes in the earth play out are through three core values. Um, so the first one being encountering God, so a little bit of what we did tonight, um, and then life-on-life -life discipleship, and the third one being missions through the local church. Um, so encountering God, that first one, um, we see that play out in maybe like worship or services like tonight, through prayer, through reading his word and letting it come alive to us um, in different ways like that, and even in different avenues. So things like Awaken or Life Group, like Malia and Dawson announced, if you are not a part of a life group, I encourage you to get a part of one, um, and you can find out information about that after the service um, in the lobby, um, but that really is the heartbeat of our church, is through life groups, that's the heartbeat of our community and where that takes place. Um, and we also have like our Sunday services and awesome things like college retreat, which you all should definitely go to as well. Um, and we're gonna be giving out more information for that as well after the service. Um, but in these different avenues, we have encountering God that takes place, but we also have discipleship that takes place. And so we are in no way here interested in making converts to Christianity, but we're interested in making followers of Jesus or leading you guys to be followers of Jesus. So we see that play out mostly in discipleship. And discipleship is something that we do in this room here through um, worship and through um, hearing the word of God and then applying it to our lives. And we see that happen through life groups. Um, but the main avenue that we actually see that through is through life-on-life -life relationships. 
um, as modeled by Jesus um, in the Gospels in the way that he lived his life. And so we don't just have like a system to get plugged into for discipleship, but it's more done relationally where it's more than just like a coffee shop meeting or like a counseling session with somebody where you talk about your feelings. Um, Though those things are good and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not discipleship unto Jesus. Discipleship unto Jesus um, is somebody pointing you to Jesus to look more like him and not more like themselves. Um, so that's a little bit of who we are. Um, we love to be kingdom-minded people, and we love to see you not just be converts, to be transformed by the kingdom of God. We believe that Jesus is king, that he's Lord, and that he has a kingdom that's advancing. Um, the tagline for this specific Antioch, so for Antioch Phoenix, so we're actually a part of a network of churches, like I mentioned. There's 50 U.S. church plants of Antiochs, and there's about 100 teams overseas um, full of missionaries. Um, but for this specific Antioch, our tagline is, I'll read it to you, Antioch Phoenix is to help usher revival into the Phoenix Valley that transforms nations through a church planning movement. So that word revival is thrown out a lot um, from time to time. Um, And yes, it is an outpouring of God's spirit on a specific region or group of people where people are getting saved and returning to the Lord. It's all those things and that's really good. Um, But I've also heard revival described before where it's kingdom order in every area of our lives. And that's what we as a college ministry long for you guys to come and experience is to have kingdom order in every area of your lives, to be captivated by King Jesus, to fall in love with him and walk out in his kingdom. So that's who we are, that's what we're about. Um, So if you guys um, will do me a favor um, and turn to Psalm 23, that's the passage of scripture that we're gonna be in tonight. Um, So this is gonna be our main passage of scripture. I'll go into a few like different bunny trails from time to time but this will be the point where we will return home to that we'll be unpacking. Um, So you guys don't need to turn to those other passages of scripture, they'll just be on the screen for you. And but this is a place that you can have open to. Again, that is Psalm chapter 23. Well, on June 12th, 1987, Ronald Reagan delivered his tear this wall down speech, a speech directed at Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. At this time in history, the Iron Curtain divided East Germany controlled by the Soviets from West Germany, one nation that was free and one that was not. In his speech at the Brandenburg Gate, Reagan challenged Gorbachev, the Soviet leader, to tear the wall down and unite Germany. This was more than just a wall, however. It had been in place for 26 years. It was a border that was separating two once unified nations, and several people had died trying to cross and escape to freedom. And in several, I mean hundreds. But two years later, on November 9th, 1989, the wall finally fell and citizens were allowed to cross the border. In 1964, Nelson Mandela stood before the South African Supreme Court, expected to testify for himself, and said he delivered a speech that would lead to unprecedented freedoms for African people and destruction of the apartheid. And on August 28th, so this is something you're a little more familiar with, Um, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his iconic I Have a Dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, a speech that was more than just eloquent words and phrases trying to convince a suppressive people or country that he was right and they were wrong. It was more than a social activist trying to advance his own agenda or a man trying to convince America that they were racist and he was not. It was a message of freedom and value for God's children, a message of justice for the oppressed. 
And to many of us in this room, these speeches are just things from history class that we learn from time to time, things that for, and we try to sound more educated, so we bring up from time to time, or just historical facts. But to the people that they were addressed to, they had incredible social, emotional, political, and even personal implications. And that's much like the message of Jesus' gospel. Jesus' message of the gospel was that the kingdom of God was at hand. It was coming to earth, and he is king. He is Lord. Over 2,000 years ago, he rode into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, fulfilling the role as the king of the Jews, Messiah, and suffering servant. Many of his disciples who were there, they understood this, but they were confused by the way that he was doing it. Confused as to why he wasn't delivering them from the oppressive Roman Empire or building some kind of military campaign, but instead he seemed to be battling another enemy, the accuser of the air, the accuser of the brethren, the prince of the air, Satan himself. And he did this um, by defeating death itself on a cross. He went the ultimate way of humility and long-suffering to, yes, seek and save the lost, but to also destroy the power of sin and death um, and to show us that he is king of the world and to bring heaven to earth by putting his spirit in us and us in turn becoming his disciples and advancing the kingdom through the way of humility, righteousness, purity, in love, in spirit, and in truth. But in today's culture, we've modernized the power or the agenda of the gospel to be about getting people converted advancing our own political agenda about whether or not we are reformed, or thinking that Jesus left some hole in the social structure that he wants us to now go and fill. And we end up missing the point of the gospel. We end up making it things that it's not. The other day, I was helping out in the children's ministry here um, at Antioch, and I was helping out with the three and four-year-olds. Um, if you guys have been with them before, they like to say a lot of like silly things, um, but I was trying to get to know one of the little three-year-old boys, asking him all the little kid questions that I know how to, like where he's from, what he likes to do for fun, and what his favorite color is, and then I asked him my favorite little kid question, and I got like my favorite little kid answer ever in the world. I asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up, and he looked at me very confidently in the eyes and told me, cucumbers. <laughs> so not just cucumbers singular, but cucumbers plural. So it was a very, like he's dreaming big. He has big aspirations for his life. Um, and I had the same reaction. I just kind of laughed. I didn't do the millennial, like culturally appropriate thing. I didn't tell him to, you know what, man? You be the best dang cucumber you can ever be. You live your truth. And if anyone tells you otherwise, then you know what? Let's cancel them. Let's make some like Facebook group about it where little kids can be fruits and vegetables when they grow up without having any pushback or any realization that's a really weird thing to say that you wanna be cucumbers when you grow up. But I didn't because he's three years old and he didn't understand the implications of what he was actually saying. And I didn't do that other weird thing that we do as a culture where I rationalize what he was saying. I didn't say, oh, he wants to be a cucumber. He wants to be like cool and refreshing. He wants to, I don't know, just weird metaphors like that. I didn't. <laughs> make up things about what he was saying. I took him at his word that he just wants to be a cucumber, but that he's a three-year-old boy and he doesn't realize what he's saying. But the point is that we do that as a culture. We do this in today's studies of scriptures as well. We try to contextualize things to our culture that's not actually there, and we miss the deep truth that the Holy Spirit wants to reveal to us through the ancient scriptures. 
We have a habit as a culture to forget the importance of history and context and miss the truth that was intended, but the word of God is powerful and it speaks for itself. It is still relative and we don't need to make things up about it that aren't actually there. Um, Like Dawson quoted last week, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. It is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And my mission today is to unpack this psalm for you, to show you why it's relative to you today, to show you the hidden secrets of the kingdom that are here for us. To, in no way am I trying to prove to you guys what I believe or to get you to believe something that I think you should believe. I'm simply praying that the word of God comes alive to you today and that it leads you into an encounter with this Jesus that we talk about himself. So picking up in verse one here in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you guys aren't already familiar with this psalm of scripture, then I urge you, I implore you to be familiar with it. Memorize it. Get to know it. It's something that we can really learn from. It's something that we can actually apply to our lives today, even though it was written in a prior time in history. So we're gonna try to unpack this scripture together and let the word of God become alive to us. So we're gonna start with verse one here. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Um, So to start, I feel like there's a little bit more context that we need here. So Psalm 23, according to Charles Spurgeon, was written at the time in David's life when he was king to an Israeli people. Um, so, scripture shows us in the books of First and Second Samuel that David, at one point in life, had been a shepherd himself. So, this psalm was written by an ancient Middle Eastern king whose previous occupation was a shepherd. That's the context that we have here. So, when David is saying that the Lord is his shepherd, it's not just this simple thing like a little three-year-old telling you that he wants to be a cucumber when he grows up, um, and then making it into a metaphor without any real substance or relativity to it. It's actually a huge claim to make to say that the Lord is your shepherd. It has a lot of implications that we don't actually understand, especially if we haven't studied the historical significance of it. And it's the same way, like I mentioned earlier, for Jesus to come in and say that he is the Messiah, the King, without us taking the time to actually understand this. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on, as a, on the donkey as the King of the Jews, it had very real implications culturally biblically, and even in the sense of prophetic fulfillment. And I believe the same is true when David says, the Lord is my shepherd. And those two statements, the Lord is my shepherd and Jesus being the king of the the Jews actually has a lot more um, to do with each other than we might think. Um, So in his incredible book, Simply Jesus, N.T. Wright unpacks how in a rural economy like ancient Israel, where looking after livestock was one of the most common occupations, Shepherd was a frequent image for king. 
And we see that played out, this theme of the Lord as a shepherd throughout the Psalms, throughout the prophets, um, and even Jesus himself in John 10 claiming to be the good shepherd himself. You can see that throughout all the books of the Gospels, especially in Matthew. And when David makes this claim that the Lord is his shepherd, and it actually changes the entire way that he lives and actually relates to God. And that's why I'm harping on this one point so much, the Lord, my, the Lord is my shepherd of what David is saying. It's because if you can believe that, if you can believe that point that the Lord is your shepherd, um, then I believe that it'll change the way that you live. It can, um, you can live this life here that David is showing us in Psalm 23 and the rest of this passage of scripture. See, David was a man after God's own heart that had tapped into like what we call now as a new covenant grace. Um, so the new covenant that you and I get to live in if Jesus is our Lord and Savior, our King. Um, in Psalm 24, you guys don't have to turn there with me, but um, in Psalm 24, verse three, it says, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Well, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. So David is describing this kind of access to God that actually only the high priest in Israel would have had at the time. That's not something that he actually would have had privilege to, but David, chosen by God and allowed by God, was able to experience what we know as new covenant grace. So what David lays out here in the rest of Psalm 23 is the life that you and I get to live being under the new covenant. It actually has a lot of parallels to the life that Jesus lived and the life that he invites us to live in now. And my heart and my intention, which I believe is led by the Spirit of God, is for you all here to experience what it would be like for Jesus to be your shepherd, to be your Lord, to be Yahweh himself leading you through everyday life. Not only because that's fun and good, but because I believe it will change your college years and the trajectory of your life. It'll save you a lot of heartache and pain for decisions that you might make trying to follow your own path. Um, and it also leads you into a lot of joy and peace, fulfillment, and like the psalm says here, mercy and grace will follow you. So David is describing this shepherd, um, this king-like figure who is claiming his Lord over his life. And now we understand that this has both cultural and prophetic implications like many of the psalms do. Um, and who is he saying is his shepherd? Well, Yahweh, the creator of his, the universe, is his shepherd, the great I am. It is this acknowledgement that David is not in charge of his own life. He surrendered his kingdom to the kingdom of God. And it's this acknowledgement of, instead of saying like, oh, the Lord is my king, and him saying the Lord is my shepherd, it's this acknowledgement that God is very intimate and close in his life in the same way that a shepherd would be with a flock of sheep. So not only a sincere posture of humility that we see here and in sincerity for God to be intimately close to him, but who else does that sound like? Well, Jesus himself, he said, the son can do nothing on his own. He only does the will of his father. Or our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And according to David, God being his shepherd is indicative of the fact that he shall want nothing or that he lacks nothing. Why? Well, because who is his shepherd? Yahweh the great I am, the creator of the universe, the one who is the ultimate provider is his shepherd, is that intimately close in his life, so now he doesn't have to lack a thing. Or as Jesus taught us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and the rest will be added to you. 
So imagine a child um, and the way that they know their parent is going to provide for them. That provision is dictated on the nature of their parent. It's not just dictated on the child's behavior. And the same with our Father in heaven, right? He's our provider and he's good and he loves us like crazy. We don't earn his provision. We just get the benefit of that by living under his covering. Um, So on Sundays, our lead pastor, Travis, will describe this like covering of the Lord, this canopy of grace that we live in as followers of Jesus. So that's kind of what I'm talking about in that new covenant relationship with God. We have this covering over us. But we also can sometimes stiff arm the Lord. We can, in our own rebellion and stupidity, we can run outside of that covering and get ourselves into trouble. And at that point, that's not on the Lord, that's on us, right? So he will be ridiculously kind in order to woo us back and to chase us down when we get outside of that covering, right? His kindness leads us into repentance. He leaves the 99 to find the one. That's who he is. He's incredibly good even when we go outside of his covering. Um, But we can't put that kind of blame on God um, because in his kindness, God sometimes lets us reap what we sow. And that's so that we know that we are independent, that we are dependent of him. We can't just do things on our own. It's so much better when he's with us. So let me be clear here. Just because things are going wrong in our life, it doesn't mean that the Lord is mad at us or he's not good. We live in a fallen world that is incredibly broken and can often be unkind to us, but our experience does not dictate our view of God. Our ultimate plumb line is the word of God. And his word is telling us here that we lack nothing. We don't need to turn to our own strength to make things happen. There's so much better when we actually trust in who he is. And oftentimes, when we're trying to trust the Lord as our shepherd, as our provider, to where we lack nothing, um, we don't actually trust him because we're not willing to sit in that uncomfortable moment and waiting for God to actually come through for us, right? We want the testimony, but we don't want to go through the hard stuff to actually sit in the place long enough for the testimony to come through. Um, So about a year and a half ago, when the pandemic first hit, I was employed here at the church part-time, but then my main source of income, I was employed at a restaurant. Um, So I was making a lot of money there, and that's where my paycheck was coming from mostly. And so I was still living paycheck to paycheck, and I've lived that way most of my life. Um, But at that time, right, restaurants were put, um, they had restrictions on them, so I got put on furlough. And so that was the first time in my life where I didn't know where my next paycheck was coming from. Um, So in my flesh and everything, I freaked out and I was like, okay, I guess I'll go home. I'll go live with my parents um, back in Albuquerque um, and I'll like kind of put the call of God on my life to be here at the church um, on hold for a while because I didn't want to sit in that uncomfortable moment. But through the encouragement um, of very godly friends, Dawson actually being one of them, um, I sat in the uncomfortable God moment for at least a week or two, um, and I saw the testimony of God's goodness, him as my provider, come through for me. Um, We have an amazing community where a ton of people um, were Venmoing me money or giving me gift cards, um, so much so that I actually had an abundance more than I did before when I actually had a job. So it was the goodness of God, and it was so good to see that happen, um, so much that I started to like give stuff away to other people who were in the same need, because I felt a little uncomfortable about, what, I'm making a little more money now? Uh, But that's just how good God is. He makes things better um, than they were before. He's a God of not just enough, but a God of abundance. And 
that place of him doing that led me to a place of rest where I was able to trust in him as my provider, to a place where I was able to lie down in green pastures, like David says here. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. Well, let's unpack that next verse. Why would a sheep lie down in green pastures? Don't they roam around pastures actually looking for more to eat? Well, not if it's had enough, not if the Lord is its shepherd, not if it's had its fill to eat, and it can lie down and rest. It lacks nothing. And a life of following Jesus might not be one, and I really actually hope it's not, where you're physically laying down all the time, um, but it is one where he offers rest. It's one where he says, come to me, all you who have heavy burdens, um, and you will find rest. Like, you can come to me. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Um, and that yoke there is like an agricultural tool. Um, so if you guys can put that up on the screen real quick for me. Sweet. So it's a little distorted with our big, crazy screen. Um, but the yoke here is what, it's an agricultural tool that would be put on the necks of two oxen. I mean, they're carrying an ox cart behind them. Um, and so when one ox gets ahead of the other, um, the burden that they're carrying or the cart that they're carrying gets a lot heavier. And it's the same with us when we're following Jesus. We walk step by step besides Jesus. We take on his easy yoke. He actually does the heavy lifting. But if we decide to get a little bit behind him or a little bit ahead of him in our striving, well, then it gets a little wonky and things get heavier. Um, but the life that he allows us to live in and what he's talking about here um, is that his burden is light. It's a life in Christianese terms where we would say a life free of striving. It's a life lived out of rest. Um, and then that next part of the verse where he leads me besides quiet waters, well, that's more than just a metaphor for peace, but a sheep that is led by quiet waters is one that's not like searching around frantically, trying to find um, rushing water everywhere. It's one that already has water in it. It's one that's already filled, right? And where do we see that? Well, Jesus said in John 4, 13 through 14, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So we have eternal life that is welling up in us, this living water where we don't have to go frantically searching around from the things of this world to fill it. I use this example kind of a lot when I preach, um, but I believe it's because um, it's pretty relative to a lot of college students. Um, so I've been following Jesus myself for about 10 years now, um, but early college, my freshman year and a little bit into my sophomore year, I had a bit of a rebellious phrase where I was stiff arming God and running outside of that covering. Um, and I started to feel this like crazy hole in my heart. There's places of unforgiveness and bitterness that I hadn't dealt with um, from my childhood in places where I was trying to fill it with other things. Um, I was turning things mainly to things like Adderall and alcohol and abusing those. Um, and it led me to this point of just complete brokenness. Um, but through the grace of God, I had friends that invited me to a college service here, um, like this one today, um, and where I came to the front just weeping and ready to be met by Jesus, to be met by the Holy Spirit, um, and he did just that. 
he met me and I experienced this kind of living water where I didn't have to thirst for those things again and I walked away free that day from those things that had a hold on my life. So a testimony of the Lord for sure, but I believe that's available to all of us. And um, you could say that that living water that I'm describing here that I experienced, it refreshed my soul um, or restored my soul, like what David says. Um, that refreshment or restoration um, is not just a one-time thing upon salvation um, when you were born again, but it's a lifelong, never-ending fountain of grace that's living in us where we get to experience thanks to Jesus' atoning work on the cross. David then goes on to say, he guides me along the right paths for his namesake. So a good shepherd leads his sheep, right? He leads them along the right paths because he cares for his sheep. He doesn't want them to get snatched away or to wander into harm. Um, this verse is really easy to receive when things are going the way that we want them to or when things are easy, and, but it's much harder when we're going through valleys or tough seasons in our life or trials. Um, so there's a humility here that David is expressing in a recognition of Yahweh's lordship and his life is a recognition that God's paths and plans for his life are right, and they're ultimately for his namesake and not his own. Um, and many scholars from the Reformed or Evangelical camps would argue that this, that this verse here actually points um, to a substitutionary theory of atonement, where Christ takes our punishment on the cross by becoming sin and satisfying God's wrath, and then imputes his perfect righteousness to us. Um, and so that's taken from 2 Corinthians 5, can't remember exactly what verse it is, but it says, like, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So not just that Jesus would um, be the atonement on the cross, taking our sin away, but that he would actually become it so that then he could transfer his righteousness to us. So essentially saying that we are hardwired to walk righteously. It's not something that we have to strive for. And I'm not trying to get you to subscribe to one atonement theory or the other. That's a journey that you'll have to take on your own time. Um, but the point is here that what David is saying, what he's trying to allude to, is that because Yahweh is his shepherd, we no longer have to figure out our own path. But we can submit to his and trust that he is the right one. But this claim here gets really difficult when the rubber meets the road and when we actually walk in real life. And as we can see in this next verse, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I'm gonna read that again in context. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake, even though I walk through the darkest valley. Sometimes, in his goodness, God leads us into a dark valley. In his book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, Philip Keller writes, this is a longer quote, so hang with me here. In the Christian life, we often speak of wanting to move to higher ground with God, how we long to live above the lowlands of life. We want to get beyond the common crowd to enter a more intimate walk with God. We seek a mountaintop experiences and we envy those who've ascended the heights and enter into this more sublime sort of life. Often we get erroneous ideas about how this takes place. It is though we imagined we could be airlifted onto higher ground. On the rough trail of Christian life, this is not so. As with ordinary sheep management, so it is with God's people. One only gains higher ground by climbing up through the valleys. One only gains higher ground by climbing up through the valleys. 
Every mountain has its valley, its sides are scarred by deep ravines and gulches and draws, and the best route to the top is always along these valleys. So whether those trials in our life, these valleys that we're talking about here, are God-ordained or God-orchestrated or caused by maybe our own stupidity or sometimes, if you're anything like me, a little bit of both, um, or it's a bit of a mystery, um, the solution is still the same. We look to our good shepherd, like David is showing us here. He goes on to say, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. He's telling us that he has a life where he's free of fear. Like, that's a crazy claim to make. But he's saying the reason for that is, like, why do we not fear no evil? Because he's Emmanuel. He's God with us. But how is he with us? How is the shepherd with us? Like, I don't see him here today in the room. Well, in Acts 2.33, this is talking about Jesus. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So Jesus is at the right hand of God, but he's poured out his spirit into us. We are now the temples of the Holy Spirit. So we can know that no matter what we face, we're not alone. He's with us. And this Holy Spirit that he gives us, it's not just like Jiminy Cricket on our shoulder telling us where to go and what to do. No, it's, it's Yahweh. It's the same God who split the Red Sea. That's who's with us. That's who's leading us and guiding us. That's how we can live a life without fear. We can know that Yahweh is for us and he's with us. And I think that that's the point of a lot of this psalm here that we see. It's showing us the intimate communion of God in our lives. It's showing us that he's very present like a, sh like a shepherd would be with his sheep. But if you've been following Jesus for at least a couple of years now, or you've just lived normal life, because life is really hard, I'm sure you've experienced these valleys from time to time. And maybe it's anxiety or depression, or it's a death in your life, or um, different things like that. Um, they are crazy difficult. You can feel very lonely, you can feel angry, and sometimes even doubtful of your faith. But that's why it's important to remember that we are not the author and perfecter of our faith, but Jesus is which means in cheesy Christian terms, we can let go and we can let God. <laughs> and I encourage you in these valleys, I implore you, because I've been through a lot of my own, to stay low, to stay humble. Get to the end of yourself as quickly as possible. Not in like weird religious ways of doing that, putting a mask on, just getting through it and saying like, oh God, you're higher than I am. No, like do the heart work. Go to those places with the Lord where it's, you can get angry, where you can be sad, where you can process with him, but stay low throughout it all. Like we're not looking to get out of the valley, we're looking for the shepherd in it, what he has in it for us. That's so much of the kingdom of God. That's so much of the kingdom of God modeled by Jesus. It's so much of the Christian life. It's this deep faith in who he is first, and then it's that place of denial of ourself. It's a death to ourself. So faith in him and denial of ourselves, that's keys in the Christian walk with God. Um, in John 12, verse 24, um, this is Jesus here. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then in Luke 9, verse 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is the way of the kingdom of God. This is the way of following Jesus. 
It's incredibly simple, yet it's extremely difficult, and that's why it's important that we know that he's with us, that the Holy Spirit is in us, that he's leading us and guiding us. He is the advocate. Jesus said it's better that he would go away and that the Holy Spirit would come and be with us. And I'd also like to propose that it's why we need his rod and his staff to comfort us in these valleys. So this rod and staff, these are actually two separate um, shepherding tools. Um, his staff represents um, rescue, um, guidance, and intimacy. Um, so that's why it has a hook shape to it. So shepherds gently draw sheep um, back to them when they're getting off course or when they're wandering into a ditch. I and mean, we've all wandered into a few ditches from time to time where the shepherd has gotten his staff and drawn us back into safe covering. And the point of the trial um, isn't just to make us stronger, um, but it's to allow us to grow in greater intimacy with the Lord. It's to help us um, throw off those things in our life that are hindering us um, from walking with Jesus. Um, it's only in the valleys where the Lord can reveal those broken places in us through trial and through testing. And sometimes in his goodness, this good shepherd uh, may even need to use his rod um, so the rod is his tool to inspect us or to correct us, um, but ultimately it's used to protect us. Um, so sometimes sheep will get infections or illnesses um, that they can't see without a shepherd um, inspecting them, pulling back their wool and revealing the wound that they have um, to ultimately protect them from destroying their lives. Um, and that's the same heart that God has with us when he's revealing sin in our life. Um, it's a disease that will destroy us, especially when we keep it hidden. Um, but when brought to the light, the Lord can come in and heal us. Um, so one way that I found key in my life um, for this to play out is by bringing it to other people. So I'm not saying that for every sin that you ever have, you need to confess to somebody else. But it is really powerful when you're stuck in a sin habit that's habitual and that you know is destroying your life. Um, in James 5.16, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And that word for heal in this context, when translated from the Greek, is actually, I'm going to butcher it here, but it's iyawomai, which means to both physically and spiritually heal. Um, so this confession that James is talking about here of sins um, was not out of the ordinary, but it was actually um, a rather habitual practice among ancient Jews, um, and especially followers of Jesus. And that wasn't for the sake of keeping tabs on each other um, or anything like that, but it was um, for the sake of the fact that um, hidden sin or sin that we keep in the dark, darkness destroys and it lies to us. It distorts our view of truth and things just get wonky when we keep it hidden. But in that hiddenness and when we bring it to the light, sometimes um, in his goodness and in the goodness of people's hearts, hopefully when they do it well, there's some correction that needs to be involved. Um, and that's not to change a behavior to make us better moral people, uh, but that's because the Lord cares very deeply about the condition of our heart and he wants to come and heal us. And the heart of the matter here is um, that in the trials of life, God is with us and he is for us. But we can only see it when we put our faith in him as our shepherd and we deny ourselves. But why is that, like, what is that all for? Like, why is God interested in just refining us and putting us through trials and stuff like that? Well, so one, for our sake, for greater intimacy with God, but another for the sake of others. 
It's this posture of humility that helps us lead to sacrificial love. Right? That's so much of what Jesus was saying in his message of the gospel. Galatians 5, verse 13 through 14, it tells us, you mothers and sisters were called to be free, um, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus even ups that command and tells us in Matthew 5, verses 43 through 45, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So it is a mark of being a child of the Father that we would love our enemies. And I believe that's what David is actually trying to tell us here in Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. When we live this life of following the good shepherd, where we're free from striving, where we're lying down um, in rest, knowing that he's more than enough, knowing that and we're full of faith and free from fear, we can live a life where he can then prepare a table of provision for us, a table of communion for us where we can feast with him and we can see our enemies and we can say, come, come and feast with me. Come and dine with me. Out of the abundance of our heart, we can then love our enemies because the Lord has moved in our lives. So maybe sometimes it's things that were in our minds um, are our enemies. I believe that sometimes this verse can apply to that too. Um, but again, looking at the culture that this was written in, David had very real enemies, people who actually wanted him dead. Um, we might not have that, and I really hope that we don't, um, but we all have people who have hurt us in life. And Jesus cares very deeply about the conditions of our hearts. So much so that he knew that there would be people um, that would hurt us and that wouldn't forgive us, right? He knew that there would be people that would show no remorse for what they would do, but he still made a way so that we could forgive them. He still made a way so that we could, out of the abundance of our hearts, um, invite our enemies to come dine with us, to come feast with us. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. He anoints us with the Holy Spirit and he fills us up to where our cups overflow in an abundance of love. Our hearts are completely hopeless though without the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. But the New Testament tells us that he pours out his spirit on his children without measure to where we are overflowing with the Holy Spirit. We are overflowing with self-sacrificial love. And this transforming work this life full of faith in our shepherd where we're free of striving and fear is not something that we do on our own out of our own like good faith in Jesus and our denying of ourselves. It's actually made possible by this next statement that David says. Surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Or as some translations put it, surely your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That is how crazy, ridiculous, and unfair the atoning work of the cross is. We have a God who loves us so much that even though, as the Bible tells us, apart from him, no one is good, not even one, he sent his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life for us and then die the death that we deserved, taking on all our past, present, future sin upon himself. And then three days later, he rose again, conquering the power of sin and death. 
so that now you and I could be reconciled to him and live this life where his goodness and his love, his mercy follow us. And the beauty of that is that his mercy picks us up when we're down and his goodness makes things even better when we get it right. That's resurrection life. It's the power of the gospel, the redemptive power of the gospel. It's the glorified form, better than it was before, where we get to begin again and again and again. It's not just a one-time thing. It's where we get to know that we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. By the power of the gospel, by the resurrection of Jesus, we are invited to spend eternity with him in heaven. And not just that, but we're invited to have a very real relationship with him now. So for those of you who don't know Jesus as Lord, maybe that's one or two of you in this room, I invite you to make that step tonight. I wanna invite you to know this good shepherd that intimately. We're gonna have people up here at the front um, who are gonna pray with us. And at the end here, we'll have a ministry team and they can help you make that step. And for those of you who have made that step before, but maybe you've turned away and lost your faith, lost your first love, just know that this good shepherd here, that he's also the one that leaves the 99 to find the one. He's recklessly chasing us down, waiting for us to take one step back towards him and he'll receive us with his goodness and mercy. And for the rest of you here tonight, I just wanna invite you to take a step, to take one step forward in whatever that looks like. Maybe that's a place of unforgiveness that you're dealing with in your heart and I believe that the Lord wants to make that possible for you tonight and help you walk through that. We'll also have people here at the front that can help you walk through that, not in a gossip kind of way, but in a way where we're helping each other out. Um, or maybe there's just a place where you know that you've been operating in your own kingdom, even though you do follow this good shepherd, but he wants you to surrender your own kingdom and follow in his ways. He wants you, maybe you're a freshman or sophomore in college, and he wants you to live the rest of your college life where the Lord is your shepherd. It'll save you from a lot of heartache and pain. Whatever it is, wherever you're at in the room, I just wanna invite you to respond to God. Let's not leave this place unchanged by this good shepherd. Let's not leave this place without meeting with him. He's in the room. So you guys can stand with me for worship. Ministry team, you guys can come forward um, at this time. They'll be up here at the front again for any of you. Um, and you can also just respond on your own. We invite you to do that. This space is open in the front. Um, but before we do that, um, I just wanna pray for you. Jesus, I thank you that you are a shepherd. I thank you that because of that, we can lack nothing. You make us lie down in green pastures. You lead us besides quiet waters. You refresh or restore our souls. You guide us along the right paths for your namesake. Even though sometimes we might walk through the darkest valleys, we will fear no evil, for you are with us, Lord. Would you lead us in a life where we are free from fear, Lord? I thank you that your rod and your staff, they comfort us, God. I thank you that you even prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. You anoint our heads with oil, our cups overflow. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So Jesus, would you come and would you move in power? In your name we pray, amen.